You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this very latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you in these times of COVID-19? Stuck safely at home, I hope. I am safely ensconced in the uh, office at home. I've seen some photos on Instagram of all everyone's home office set up. And as you know, you and I have been doing it for a few years. And so we're pretty well set up. And uh, I think that's the wonderful thing about the podcast. Uh, and indeed, lots of others, we'd be lost without the internet in these times. But here we are. Yes, all of a sudden we're finding the internet a little bit crowded, actually, um, particularly with everyone w- w- um, working from home. And look, um, we do send our best to um, all the, these people out there um, impacted in some way by COVID-19. I think um, in the energy sector, probably not as harsh as it has been in other sectors. I don't think um, people have lost jobs unless they may be in the home delivery part of the equation and possibly I think rooftop solar people might start to be impacted. But um, certainly a few complications from some for some projects, particularly those with big camps and big installations. Um, people obviously being stopped from uh, flying from one place to another, possibly to oversee the final connections or commissioning agreements. So certainly some impacts, but um, we wish everyone the best and um, I hope you get used to working at home for the next few weeks or possibly a few months. So, you know, there's about 12 million employed Australians, or there were, and uh, some back-of-the-envelope calculations can easily come up with one to one and a half million being stood down, at least temporarily. I just saw in the news today that in West Australia, fly-in, fly-out work is are now being, won't happen anymore, so that's a, another whole industry shut down, even in the mining sector. Uh, we could talk about that a lot, Giles, but there are many, many medical and economic experts out there, and I don't think we classify as in any of those categories, do we? No, we probably don't. But look, the good news, David, is that um, there's actually been a few interesting developments over the last couple of a couple of days. Um, Queensland seems to be the centre of attention. Not only do we have the um, country's largest wind farm um, more or less getting approval, certainly a big contract that will enable it to be built um, starting next year um, coming to light, but also the country's first... Um, what would be the first ever privately owned pumped hydro project, although that's probably not quite true. There's one down in Mullumbimby, just down the road from me, which is very, very small, but was the first privately owned pumped hydro project built in the 1930s, I think, when the local population got completely sick of waiting for the state utility to build them something. So they built it themselves. But look, we'll get on to GenX later. First of all, we have an interview with Brett Wickham. He's the Chief Executive of Actheona Australia, which is building the 1,026 megawatt, that's 1.026 gigawatts, uh, McIntyre Wind Farm in Queensland, and David and I caught up with him earlier today. Brett Wickham, um, CEO of Actheona Australia, I think I got the pronunciation right or approximate, and um, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. No problem, Giles. Yes, the, the, the accent and the pronunciation was perfect. It's Actheona. Oh. 
God, that must have been benefit of my three weeks in Spain a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> in fact, I think I went to see an Acciona um, installation in northern Spain, actually, a bit of a wind research centre. So um, that must have been you, where it was drilled into me. Yeah, you may have. Was it in Pamplona? Yes, it was. Yes, it yeah, was. Well, it's so, right, um, that, that research centre is right opposite our head office in Pamplona. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Terrific. Well, look, um, you're um, joining us today because Actheona and the Queensland government have just announced what will be the biggest wind farm, wind project in Australia until, of course, another bigger one comes along. But 1,026 megawatts um, in south and southern southwest Queensland, I think it is. Look, just give us a bit of an overview of it. Um, it's, um, it's bloody big and... Um, we presume reasonably cheap, but we'll find out later. Later, I suppose. <laughs> well, we, we may well. We're not sure, but uh, yeah. Look, we're really proud of the McIntyre project. It is in in south southeast Queensland, I guess. It's just a little bit southwest, about fifty kilometres southwest of Warwick, the town town of Warwick. So. Um, just down right now, down near the New South Wales border, but we won't speak too much about that. It's a fantastic project for us. We've been working on it now for 10 years, I guess, trying to make it work, collecting data on that site. And it's grown. Um, thankfully, now it's stopped growing. So it'll be 180 turbines across the wind precinct, what we're calling the McIntyre precinct, which will be two distinctly separate wind farms, one of 18 turbines or about 100 megawatts that we're building for Cleanco, uh, the Cleanco wind farm, and then the other 162 turbines on the site, uh, which will be a separate wind farm for us called the McIntyre wind farm. So 923 megawatts for Actheona and about 103 megawatts it is in total for Cleanco. So it's a wonderful site, about 36,000 hectares of uh, agricultural land that will continue to be agricultural land once it's built um, with a very long grid connection, uh, 330 kV connection, about 64 k's, running back over towards Millmarin to basically the top of the interconnector with New South Wales. Perfectly Brent, can I just ask a little bit? Sorry, sorry, Giles. I, I get him. Uh, uh, could I ask Brett just on the turbines? The uh, you yep. they seem to be quite big. Like your Axiona, and I'll never pronounce it right. Took over Nordex, I think, last year, and now Nordex turbines. I think for this project are five point nine megawatts, which is very big by the standards of Australia. Um, are you confident about that technology? And what can you say about the capacity factor that you expect to get there uh, as opposed to, I don't know, other capacity factors using other turbines? Yeah, good question, David. Um, they're actually a 5.7 megawatt turbine and they're part of the new Nordex platform. It's called a Delta 4000 platform and we, we're actually installing that platform at Mortlake, our wind farm down here in Western Victoria. Um, we believe that that platform or that turbine um, based on the Nordex order book of about uh, three or four gigawatts they've got under order at the moment is as competitive from an LCOE and the cost of energy output as any turbine in the world. So um, you're right, Actiona sold its turbine division to Nordex, I think it was about two years ago now. Um, and now I guess we predominantly use um, either what you'd call the old uh, Actiona platform or the new uh, Nordex platform, whatever 
fits uh, the wind farm best. And in this case, the N163, so it's a 163 uh, metre diameter rotor um, of the uh, 5.7 megawatt machine is the best match for that site. Um, it's a great wind site, very solid winds um, with not great turbulence on the site. And the N163 suits, suits that site, the 5.7 megawatt configuration suits that site perfectly. The Delta 4000 platform, the Nordex platform, um, has the ability for you to tune the output of the turbine depending on what the wind loading um, and the wind details. And I'm not a wind engineer, so I'm not going to go into it too much. What the wind uh, is on the site to get the maximum, I guess, benefit from an energy perspective and also, I guess, get the best um, maintenance and, and, and breakdown performance or lack of that uh, for the turbines. So 35%, would you say, or do you think you, I mean, a lot of people talk about 40%, but over many years of looking at wind farms, I've uh, learnt that I should always knock a few percent off what the <laughs> what the manufacturer says they're going to do. Yeah, look, I mean, um, you know, all wind farms, you'd know, I mean, in, in Australia, based on, I guess, you know, your ability to finance a project or to, to make a project work is is basically two things, the cost of the the, the the actual machine, and also what wind you're going to get, the energy resource you're going to see. Certainly, we're, we've got a, a project which is solid. I'm not going to go into the exact, uh, you know, net full load hours for the site, but the capacity factor is solid um, for that site. Very good. And what about CapEx? That... Oh, sorry, Giles. You, no, you go, David. No, well, sorry, I, I, I should have, but what about the CapEx? I mean, and can you tell me about maintenance? So one of the and economies of scale, um, you know, so I've been talking to other people who propose one gigawatt, 1,000 megawatt wind farms, and they tell me you can these days get whole of farm guarantees for service. I guess this is part of a trend that we're seeing of integration. It's the same with gold wind where the wind farm owner actually is also the turbine manufacturer. So these things mean a little bit less, but I've been talking about, you know, operating costs per megawatt. If you look at the Infogen stuff, it's over $20 a megawatt hour is what it works to. But with these much larger turbines and things, I've heard talk that it can be under $10 a megawatt hour. Uh, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about, and the capital cost, I presume, I mean, I've used numbers historically in A dollars of about $1.8 million a, a, a megawatt. I, I know you can't talk specifics, but I would appreciate if you could just give a bit of colour uh, around what you're expecting to see on what is a very large project that should lift uh, the Queensland renewable energy share by 3 or 4% all by itself. Yeah, yeah, good good questions, David. Look, um, maybe maintenance I'll cover first. Um, because we operate, I mean, you, Actiona has a model where we develop, build, own and operate renewable energy assets all over the world. So we're operating about, operating about 10 gigawatts of uh, assets in 14 different countries at the moment. Um, and so our, our plan is to build a quality product and then operated it for the long term. And it's our team that operates it. I mean, we have 24 by 7 control rooms that monitor what's happening on sites. So I guess when you talk about $20 a megawatt hour, I'd say that's at the, at the quite high level um, because we would see that we can 
operate with our teams, operate with our control rooms, and we can get the best energy output over the plant over the longer term at a rate, I would say, that's lower than what you've talked about there at the $20 a megawatt hour. Now, those numbers you're talking about are probably for a developer who doesn't have maintenance teams. Maybe they're just an investor. They just want set and forget and they're happy to pay probably a premium for, for what is probably a premium service. Um, we, we're constantly reviewing our maintenance practices and you know we have guys on site 24 seven, we have the control rooms and we you know, run at a lower cost than the $20 a megawatt hour at least. Um, on the construction side, um, we've commented here that the, the the 1,026 megawatts is about 1.96 billion Australian dollars. So probably a little bit above where you're talking about the 1.8 uh, for an all-in project of this size. I mean, the size of this project, you know, as we add more megawatts to a project like this from a construction perspective, yes, you see a lowering of, you know, the cost to add the extra megawatts. The problem is you do get to a point where you're starting to add more megawatts at an equal price, which are not giving you the same energy return. I mean, on a site like this, we picked 230 locations for turbines, but as you can well understand, you keep adding turbines in, your LCOE starts to drop away, but you get past a point where you're adding in least less productive turbines, so your LCOE starts to be driven in the wrong direction. The key aspect of this project was probably the utilisation of the grid connection, because once we had decided to put in the grid connection between the farm and the, basically the interconnector at Millmerin, the 330 kV line, that's a huge investment. You want to make the site big enough to pay for that investment, and originally the wind farm was going to be 540 megawatts with a single circuit connection. To go to a double circuit connection is not that much more expensive. Well, immediately then you've got so much more capacity you can utilise, so we added in the extra turbines. So that's sort of the mathematics you'll go through for a site like this, um, where we had lots of land and lots of locations for turbines, and it was just about getting that balance right with adding enough to utilise the grid connection and then not start to add too many unproductive or lower production turbines as to be driving your cost of energy in the wrong direction. Um, I might jump in with a couple of questions. Um, the economics must have been pretty good because um, the driving force behind this project is obviously this contract that you have with Cleanco, the new Queensland government generator. Now, as you mentioned before, they're building their own 103 megawatt plant um, within that project, which I find a bit strange. And I'd, I'd love for you to explain to me why they're doing that and why you're allowing them to do that. And they're also contracting another 400 megawatts. Now, that's the entirety of this uh, long-awaited and some would say long-delayed RE400 auction that was being held by the Queensland government. So um, it must be a fairly compelling project in terms of economics. And perhaps you can go into some of the reasoning why um, uh, Clean Co are building their own project within a project. Oh, look, without wanting to go uh, to, to be too negative about the questions, I mean, questions on what Cleanco want to do really should be placed at Cleanco. I mean, I can talk a little bit about them, and I will, um, but really, I mean, Cleanco, as I understand, have a mandate to 
you know, not only to be able to firm renewables in energy in Queensland, to have contracts for PVAs, to own some assets. They've got some existing assets uh, with Wyvernhoe and a few others. And, um, you know, they're out to try and make money. And I assume that uh, the project that we have, or that they have secured to purchase from us at 103 megawatts through their analysis, they'll be making money. So, um, you know, that's just an EPC contract that we will be delivering for them. On the 400 megawatt side, um, yes, look, it was phenomenal that um, we were awarded a 400 megawatt PPA. I mean, that's, you know, it certainly is a foundation and a you know, cornerstone for us to build a project off. Um, like all of our projects, we try and have, a, a you know, a, a, at least a foundation sort of PPA for us to be able to get going. We'll then look you know, we'll take take some merchant risk, and we'll probably look at some corporate PPAs and so forth on top mm. of that as well. So, um, so, so yeah, yeah. The, the the energy minister, I think, last year when he was talking about um, when he relaunched the uh, bidding process for RE four hundred, reckoned, um, and he was also sort of slapping down some of the uh, silly suggestions about a new coal fired generator in North Queensland. He was suggesting he could buy wind at around forty four dollars a megawatt hour. And I think the Queensland wholesale price, the futures, is pricing in just $50 a megawatt hour for, um, in, in a couple of years when the first part of McIntyre comes online. So I'm just guessing then, um, I'm, you know, just a bit babe in the woods when it comes to electricity <laughs> markets, that um, your price must be well below $50 and perhaps even further below because you might be able to top up. Well, there's not much to top up in the wholesale market, I suppose, in the spot market, but maybe you can do it on some, uh, some other PPAs. Oh, Giles, look, you know, I'm not going to talk about numbers and, 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 and specific details because it just wouldn't be appropriate. But, you know, your numbers that you've just mentioned there are, are probably correct looking forward. I mean, who knows Who knows what's going to happen with the future? We know that the cheapest new entry generation you can get is wind or solar. Okay, that's quite clear. Um, we know the numbers they're talking about and the numbers that you have just been uh, mentioning. One of the biggest issues we're grappling with at the moment when I, not only on the McIntyre project, but in countries all over, in projects all over the NEM, um, one of the biggest issues we're dealing with is is the forward prices. And, and the biggest, what I guess, disruptor to some of those is what's going to happen with the coal-fired power stations. When are they going to come off? What's going to be the impact? What's going to be the implications on the prices and so on and so forth? I mean... It's almost like at the moment we don't need a plan for renewables, but we, but we need a plan which allows us to manage what happens to these stations and when they retire so that the rest of the market has time to um, manage that in a, in a way which doesn't cause too much disturbance to the market. I mean, we saw what ha happened with Hazelwood when it came off straight away. I would certainly be advocating that we have far, far greater level of planning around that. Well, Brent, can I ask? Uh, so, could I ask about the financing just quickly? I mean, uh, do you propose to just on the debt side of it? I guess will you be coming to the local banks or international banks? And I, I, I guess they must be quite happy to lend to this kind of project at the at the moment. And I guess one of the things that helps the economics is the cost of debt uh, must be pretty attractive relative to history. Oh yeah, David. I mean. You know, we have uh, we've all used all different financing models in the past, from individual project financing to a corporate to corporate facilities and so on and so forth. Um, I've had lots of banks ringing me in the last week, wanting to chat, and lots of them that we've done really, really good business with over the years. 
um, uh, the team out of Madrid and my local CFO will be you know, working through all of those. But you're right. I mean, the cost of debt at the moment is quite low. Um, I guess companies like Axiona that have a good track record, we operate lots of assets locally. This will be our sixth wind farm locally, um, you know, with a good – it's a de-risked project in, in these circumstances, especially when we've got this, you know, PPA as a foundation for us. Um, yeah, so I'm sure I'm sure I'll be continued to be contacted by the banks in coming days. And, and South Mortlake, uh, I will, uh, Giles, back to you. Yeah, just another before we get on, on to um, other um, projects, just wanted to ask one more about um, McIntyre. I was just following up with CleanCo because um, my understanding was that the RE400 auction was supposed to have some element of storage, and um, in the end, this project doesn't at this stage. They did say they are still in the market for some storage. Um, not too sure how they're going to be pursuing that, and they did actually suggest in the email they sent me that McIntyre is storage capable. I guess everything is now, but um, is there any long-term plans to add such storage to in the future? Um, look, at, at the moment, we've planned for storage, but we haven't uh, put it into stage one of the project um, at, at this point in time. Um, you know, storage... Uh, if someone can tell me how I can unlock the value of storage, um, you know, at the moment, there's not really the mechanisms there. Um, we don't have a capacity market. We don't... You can't make enough money out of arbitrage at the moment. FCAS is really quite limited. So the storage numbers just aren't quite there yet, I don't think. Um, and, you know, we, we'll see what happens in the market with market mechanisms in the coming years. But we're putting in some uh, storage at Mortlake South. Um, this will be eight megawatt hours. So it's not really, you know, um, large scale storage like we're seeing in some other areas. Um, but we'll use that as a bit of a learning uh, curve for us, um, and then we'll see what happens with McIntyre in the future. As I understood from the original R400, it was mainly on the PV side that they wanted storage. Um, certainly at this stage, as I, I've said in the past for McIntyre, one of the, the great benefits of McIntyre is that it's so complementary to PV. So we have strong wind overnight, strong wind in the morning and the afternoons. So it's a it's a really good match uh, to to link up with PV. And obviously Queensland and, um, is leading the country in the level of uh, not only grid connected PV but also rooftop storage. So yeah. And Brett, can I ask, at the risk of not even understanding the question that I'm asking, let alone the answer you're going to probably give me. There's been a lot of talk about system strength and, in, in, you know, the way of dealing with it so far is to add in a synchronous condenser, but it seems to me uh, that going forward, it's going to be the wind and the solar farms that are going to have to do more with their inverters um, uh, in the way of being able to provide voltage and frequency support to the grid. Have you thought about those issues in relation to McIntyre? And if so, does it mean anything for the project? Yeah, we have, David. I mean, McIntyre has got, you know, I, I firmly believe that one of the, you know, the criteria, uh, although Clinco didn't tell us this, one of the criteria that they would have used um, was grid, the, the ability to connect the project. And when you look at the publicly available information from PowerLink, um, McIntyre's in one of the best grid locations in Queensland. 
um, you know, close to Brisbane, close to the load, below the sort of north-south congested location that you have in the network, close to the interconnector. You know, the interconnector has been upgraded um, and, you know, there'll be a third interconnector in the future. So McIntyre is in a very good location. As part of our construction, I guess, estimates, we have put some money aside for reactive support, the possibility of, you know, synchronous condenser um, and other work, uh, harmonic filters and so on and so forth that we'll probably have to put in. Um, we haven't finished our grid connection process at the moment with PowerLink and AEMO, so we are, you know, thinking that we're going to have to do something, um, but we go into it that with our eyes fully open. I think one of the issues that you have, David, and again, I'm not a power systems engineer, uh, so I'm not going to get too deep into the detail, but Axiona is making a... A, a choice to stay away from uh, weaker parts of the grid right across the NEM. So, you know, we've changed at Mortlake South, we changed our connection from 66 kV connection to a 220 kV connection. Uh, here in, in uh, McIntyre, it'll be a 330 connection. Most locations now, we're not going below 132, just because, you know, in the weaker parts of the grid at the lower voltages, um, not only do you have more issues, but you have more issues if people uh, are going to be connecting projects close to you. Um, so it becomes more of a problem. So we're certainly taking the, the view that we'll connect to stronger and higher voltage uh, parts of the grid. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this um, South Mortlake battery, um, 8 megawatts? That's the first I've heard of it. I'm just, just a bit fascinated by what else is, uh, the re what's going in and, and why. And um, maybe just give us, because um, we're running out of time, a quick overview of um, what else Actheona is up to in the renewable space in Australia. Yeah, sure, Giles. Um, yeah, look, uh, Mortlake uh, South, South was a project that we were awarded under the VRET, so the Victorian Rural energy target program that was approved I don't know early last year I think from memory um, we've started construction down there the civil works have, have been finished we're doing we're laying the 220 underground cable at the moment back to the 220 connection in Tarang there will be a battery as part of that an 8 megawatt hour battery which will be installed um, you know as I said we'll be putting up turbines over in the coming sort of two or three months after COVID, hopefully, when we start to see a bit of a reprieve there. Um, the battery is not, being, not going in just yet. We will, uh, AMO at the moment has published some possible changes in the way they're going to be approaching the battery and the connection of batteries, um, which we're just waiting for that approval, but we'll be connecting that battery shortly after the wind farm is commissioned, subject to going through all the, the processes with with um, with AEMO and, and Osnet, the local TNSP. So that's very exciting for us. It's our first large scale, even though it's not sort of compared to the Hornsdale battery and so forth at eight megawatt hours. But we're looking at using that as a, as a, as a little bit of a learning tool for us to, to, you know, I guess understand more closely how we're gonna operate batteries, uh, what we can learn from that, um, you know, how we can dispatch and charge the batteries and so, so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, and as you've said, you know, for projects, all our projects going forward now, we will be seeking planning approval uh, to have batteries installed. Um, we're moving very much globally to uh, what we would call hybrid projects, which are wind, PV and battery. 
a mixture of all of them, and we're seeing that in Spain, in, uh, in Mexico and Chile at the moment. We're moving towards those sorts of projects. Um, and I think it's the way of the future. It allows us to provide more firmer, firmer renewables. Um, yeah, so I think batteries will form part of the future. I'm just not sure our regulatory framework at the moment is has grappled enough with batteries. And batteries are still coming down in price. So storage is getting cheaper year on year with batteries, but I think we're still a way off. Um, you, you guys will be, Australia will be about number two or number three, I think, in Axiona's uh, global energy sort of countries. It's quite a going to be quite a big area of uh, exposure. Uh, I guess, does that mean that McIntyre's about the limit of your sort of ambition over the next uh, couple of years, really? I mean, it's a big, pro- it's plenty to be going on with, isn't it? You ca- I couldn't hardly do anything extra. Yes, David, I'm not sure I want anything else on my plate just at the moment. That's probably not what uh, the bosses in Madrid would say to me. No, I mean, Australia, we operate in roughly 14 countries and five continents. So we've got about, as I said before, roughly 10 gigawatts of installed capacity, about seven wind, a gigawatt in PV, a gigawatt in hydro, and then there's sort of bits and pieces of other of other stuff, um, all renewable. Um, no, Australia is one of our four primary, what we call primary countries. So Australia, Chile, Mexico, US, and now it's gone back to Spain with the current growth in Spain, um, notwithstanding the current situation. They're one of the, the the four or five primary countries that we operate out of. I mean, we have plans to be growing somewhere between one and two gigawatts a year globally, um, and that's what we'd like to maintain. That's what we've mentioned in our business plan about a month ago, and, and you know, my CEO, global CEO, Rafael Mateo, is pushing us as hard as we can. I mean, if I can get another project up, Soon, well, then we'll just have multiple construction crews and away we go. Um, you know, we have a big team here in Australia. We have 120 people, um, notwithstanding what's going to be employed with McIntyre. But, you know, we have 100 here in the office in Melbourne and roughly 20 doing operations around the, the, the country. Um, you know, and, and as long as we can keep getting projects, we'll keep building them. I'll just, yeah, i just got one tiny question. I, I guess lately there's been sort of... Uh, a lot of uh, sort of grumpiness about the state of the grid and, and whose who's fault it is. How do you find generally your ability, the, I guess, the level of understanding uh, of, say, the people at AEMO? Uh, uh, in, in your opinion, from a global perspective, do you think Australia is sort of keeping up with uh, global developments and as technically competent as, as some of the other jurisdictions? <laughs> That's, I mean, you know, it's a sort of a... Oh, no, 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 I can talk about that. I mean, having worked, uh, you know, I've worked for Actiona in South Africa for three years and then I worked in Spain for two years looking at our global operations and I think AEMO are as good as any organisation around the world and they are all facing the same issues. Now that we are choosing, you know, to uh, place more renewable assets in Far-flung locations, they're all facing the same problems. And I don't, you know, I think AEMO are doing a really good job under extremely difficult circumstances. I mean, you know, they weren't responsible for planning the the network 20 years ago or 10 years ago. The different states were responsible. And if I just look at uh, Victoria, uh, because I'm most familiar with it, 
you know, the load was growing in Melbourne, the generation was growing down the valley. We just added more transmission lines between the two locations. Um, we never built a terminal station. We upgraded a few. We put a cable in down Hoddles. We didn't do much at all. Well, the world's just gone pear-shaped since then. So, you know, and they're struggling, um, you know, to, to catch up. Also, I'll say in those days, our transmission planning was, was based on the next incremental upgrade for the least cost. So we tended to paint ourselves into the corner a bit. There was no massive new lines put across the state. You know, no one knew that we were going to be unlocking the northwestern part of Victoria for more solar or the southwestern part for wind. But it's those kind of things that we probably need to now be able to invest in. And, you know, I think some of the us as proponents, we need to do some heavy lifting. Hence, McIntyre's building 64 kilometres of very expensive overhead line to, to unlock a very, very good renewable asset. But I think also there needs to be a lot more work on on us being a more meshed and and more you know well interconnected NEM. I mean we already see now I think there's five or six interconnector upgrades or new interconnectors on the table. They they need to be fast tracked, um, not only to solve the current problems but be able to unlock more renewable energy assets. Um, you know in in the various reasons regions that you know we can across the NEM. But all in all, the same problems are being felt in various countries. Uh, I experienced the same issues in South Africa, Chile, Mexico, all the same. But I think AEMO is doing the best possible job under extremely difficult circumstances. I mean, our grid is one of the longest grids in the world. You know, our population's very, very close to the coast, all the way down the east coast of Australia. Um, you know, with load and generation in, in, in historically strange areas because of obviously where the coal was. But uh, I think we do need to invest in interconnectors and we need to invest in upgrading a lot of the networks. And that needs to be across the board, not only from the proponents, but I think there needs to be some big investments at state or federal level to be able to uh, upgrade the grid for the future. That was Brett Wickham, the head of Actheona Australia and the McIntyre Wind Farm. Um, David, a pretty impressive project by all accounts. Um, what's your best bet then? He wouldn't tell us the price, but I'm guessing it has to be sub $50 a megawatt hour. Otherwise, there's probably no point, given that's where the futures price is um, taking us. And uh, and um, they managed to clean up completely in the uh, Clinco contract. Well, they did. And, you know, it, it is uh, twice the size of any other wind project in Australia. It is another one of these highly uh, vertically integrated projects, so a similar model to Goldwind. Uh, the turbine size, 5.7 megawatts, is uh, very large by the standards of most uh, turbines operating around the world and in Australia today. Um, and so there's, it's, it's, it's big business all right. Um, there's, I don't know what the price under the PPA is, and so uh, and every PPA is different. And for that matter, the PPA really only covers 10 years worth of life uh, of the project uh, and at that only for about 45% uh, uh, of its rated capacity. So there's a, he'll, he'll be a busy boy for a while yet, I suspect. 
Yeah, it's busy sort of trying to firm up contracting with other clients and um, also playing the merchant market. So um, that will be interesting. Look, there's another big contract um, or sort of big project that we mentioned at the start of the podcast, the uh, Kidston Pumped Hydro Project in North Queensland. Now, look, this came undone late last year when Energy Australia got a bit of a tap on its shoulder from its major shareholder, CLP, saying we're a bit uncomfortable about your equity exposure and the 30-year timeframe of the PPA. Um, renegotiate it please um, that forced GenX to put its funding from the North Australia Infrastructure Facility $610 million the entire debt um, onto the back burner and also its equity talks I think with the Japanese company um, so but look they, they've managed to come to an agreement it's now a 10-year uh, contract with Energy Australia renewable twice for another 10 years um, no equity for Energy Australia Energy Australia basically take control of the project um, in terms of dispatch takes all the risk of volume and MLF uh, Genix seem to be quite happy. They get to build it. They get an annual fee. And um, interestingly, it's the first of any pumped hydro project to be built in 40 years. I mean, it will obviously be get, get in there before Snowy 2.0 and, and, and the first of um, any private term to be built, apart from the um, aforementioned Mullumbimby tiny hydro project. What's your take on it, David? Uh, Giles, well... You know, the first point to make, I guess, is that Origin actually owns Shoalhaven, and uh, whilst they didn't build it, they do own it, and so there is some privately owned pumped hydro around the place. Uh, the second point is, it's interesting to see whether this will actually be operating before Snowy 2, that time it's, both projects will take quite a while to build. Uh, the third point to note is, yes, that um, uh, Genix is getting a capacity payment uh, each year, as they've said. And so they are essentially don't have to worry about anything after that. Um, and let's just wait. And, and I guess the fourth point to note is that this project, uh, great advantage, it seems to me, is that it's actually pretty much ready to go. Uh, one of the things I think debates around the place is that we see all this stuff from Andrew Blakers and down at ANU about how wonderful pumped hydro is. And, you know, there's a world map with about a billion pumped hydro sites on them. Uh, but the reality is, I think that pumped hydro is actually way, way more difficult to build than that. Every single site has got uh, environmental or other issues of one kind or another, like rock quality, et cetera, et cetera. So to actually have a project ready to go is not something that should be underestimated. Absolutely, and we've seen the um, the further calls um, over Snowy 2.0. A, a group of thirty um, energy experts um, put out a letter last week, complaining um, or sort of you know sort of lamenting both the environmental and the economic viability of Snowy 2.0. Um, Kidston project, interestingly, for those who don't know, is going to be built in an old gold mine. Um, it was a uh, open pit mine, very deep, so they've got a reservoir on the top. They have put a, fill up a reservoir at the bottom and basically use that to sort of do the difference, pumping water up and then letting it come back down again and, and, and spinning a turbine and generating power. One interesting thing about it, I guess, is that Energy Australia sees as is as a, a very effective balance with the amount of solar um, that's already in the grid in Queensland. It was interesting talking to uh, the Kidston people today, and they had two options to expand their project. One was with about 270 megawatts of solar and another one with 150 megawatts of wind. 
And like the McIntyre project, their priority now is wind, which I guess is another way of saying that there's probably been too much solar built in Queensland. Um, they're going to add more wind and then probably see how it all lies um, after that. But um, I guess that's a fair way down the track. Well, the trouble with utility solar, as I've said a number of times on this uh, podcast, is that it actually has to compete with uh, behind the meter solar, with the rooftop stuff. And the rooftop stuff doesn't give a toss about price. It's just out there running. But because it's running, uh, it doesn't even know what the price is, the average homeowner in the middle of the day. Uh, why should they? But uh, it, it drives down the price of the utility solar. And so that's, that's, that's the problem. Uh, even so, you can imagine a case where uh, and lots of people have imagined it, where, where you have solar working to uh, provide the storage for the pumped hydro. And indeed, you can imagine a two, uh, a pumped hydro and solar only uh, kind of a, a, um, energy system if you wanted to. Uh, but wind in Queensland is certainly going to be important. Every study shows, if we look at David Osmond, that you, you're going to need lots of wind in Queensland, more than just what's available in southern Queensland. And so there's a lot of things to think about the whole thing, and Queensland is changing pretty rapidly. Uh, that McIntyre project is going to add, I think, about five, three, over three terawatt hours of output to a 60 terawatt Queensland market, 60 terawatt hour market. So that's 5% increase in the renewable capacity from that just one project. Uh, and, you know, that McIntyre is going to be up and running pretty quickly, really, in the scheme of things if they stick to their plan. Now, Giles, you also, just while I was talking about pumped hydro, um, had a story a week or two ago saying that, you know, because we had uh, Darren Miller from um, um, Arena on there confidently telling us uh, before that we'd have a pumped hydro project in South Australia announced that Arena would be helping to fund um, uh, before Christmas. And, you know, here we are at the end of March and uh, I haven't seen a project in South Australia. Have you seen one? No, 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 no. We did actually find out from Arena the other day that they had actually made a selection and they weren't going to announce it until further talks had been held with the um, project owner, presumably to make sure that things are still adding up. There's no point announcing a winner of the project and then finding it's going to fall over. So, um, but it was down to three because AGL had withdrawn its proposed project in Canman 2. Um, that's with a, another um, miner whose name I can't remember now, but um, they actually found more ore, so they wanted to keep on digging, so they had a bit of an argument about what to do with the main pit, and um, um, AGL lost out. So, um, And, of course, we haven't heard anything about the Ungi project yet again. This is the thing that um, Angus Taylor was trying to rush through before the last election and now seems to be pretty happy to sit down and do not much. So um, there's about uh, Speaking four... about mining... Uh... Speaking about mining, Giles, uh, and or at the bottom of the mind, I've got a couple of really quick jokes uh, at this time of uh, COVID. Oh, uh, okay, here's uh, a bit of a warning. Uh, this, this, this could be edited uh, out, but anyway, go ahead, Mark, David. <laughs> what, what was Mark Twain's definition of a mine? I don't know, David. And that was a what hole was in the ground with a liar standing on top of it. Oh, very and, good. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other one we used to have uh, was uh, the Golden Shaft, you know, mining company, you know, uh, which um, yes. uh, one of my stockbroking friends who should remain nameless used to say, uh, I'll get the gold and you'll get the shaft. Yeah. Yes. Very good. That must be good old mining analyst jokes. Thank you very much for that, David. Look, there's just one more thing I want to round up before before we go. Um, McIntyre, of course, he mentioned the in uh, the interconnected with the New South Wales and Queensland. Um, the A uh, announced um, on Monday that they've actually approved the upgrade of that interconnector. Um, that's only a few months after it was actually proposed. That must be some sort of land speed record for a regulator, I think, in Australia. 
Yeah, uh, yes, and it's only the first of two upgrades that's coming on that QNI link. We'll we'll need more. And on the pumped hydro thing, I, I think also it's worth mentioning that BassLink's also uh, continuing to progress. Uh, one of the things we didn't ask um, uh, Brett from McIntyre about, he's got a thousand megawatt watts uh, with his um, connection to the Milmerin line. I, I also made me think maybe you could do that with a DC line rather than an AC line. But anyway, obviously we're way past that. Uh, part of the conversation so um, the transmission upgrades are continuing but as we've also mentioned so is the behind the meter uh, strength has also continued at a couple of hundred megawatts a month so that's not going to continue because of COVID in the short term and also I think there'll be gradual slowing down because quite frankly electricity prices at the moment are falling quite sharply <clears throat> electricity demand is, is very soft uh, right now naturally and prices are half what they were in the spot market a year ago that's yet to flow through the futures prices, but it's uh, something we'll all be keeping an eye on. And uh, I guess it's the control systems I still keep focusing on now. I, I'm, we saw these issues in North Queensland around the uh, system strength and that they're going to address with synchronous condensers. But as I keep saying, synchronous condensers are not the way to re redesign the grid for the future. And I was surprised that uh, we wouldn't see a bit more from McIntyre in terms of uh, inverters that can actually provide sort of system strength uh, capabilities. And uh, I think you mentioned harmonics, and that's about all I know about that topic. Yes, well, look, I, I think um, I think a lot of them are waiting to see what happens with the Hornsdale upgrade, which is going to have grid-forming inverter capability and inertia and things like that. And I think that's going to be quite important. If those studies are um, uh, very promising, then I think you might see very quickly this um, shift to uh, different sort of inverted technologies and capabilities which may resolve these problems and um, uh, these problems um, do actually only exist in, in modelling so far. There hasn't actually been a, a, an example, a, a physical example out there um, of these issues so um, still controversial in some eyes but anyway we'll get that topic uh, into that topic a bit further down the track. David I think that's a bit of a wrap today. I think um, we've kept people long enough. I just would like to thank just, just one more no, thing David, before we got go one on. more. Uh, always got one go more. Ahead. Sorry, Joel. Been stuck at home uh, too long, and but we do need to thank our sponsors very seriously. But I'm interested if you were to dig around and find out what's been happening in the home battery market because it's very unclear to me how much growth we've seen in that in the past 12 months and whether there's been any acceleration in the uptake. But let's uh, leave that out there as something we might talk to our listeners about uh, at some other point. Yeah, we'll do that. And um, if anyone's got any information or ideas about that, then uh, please let us know. Um, thank you very much to our sponsors, Solaray Energy and Evergen. Thank you for your ongoing support. Uh, very much appreciate it. And um, thank you all, to all our listeners. Please do leave a review if you can. I think Apple iTunes is the best place to do so. Uh, please spread the word about the podcast and um, please give us your feedback. And um, I think that's a wrap for today. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.